Welcome to Red State Talk Radio. You're listening to Tori Says for the next hour. I'll be your host, Tori. We'll be discussing news, foreign and domestic, unfiltered news. Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today, 19th of August, 2019. It's pretty insane, I think. If you consider just how things are going and how they're developing, it seems that we have a lot going on both on a local and international um, scale. I apologize for the sound issues. You know, it's kind of hard when the owner of the station is gallivanting in Europe uh, to try to get um, tech on board quicker. Um, There's lots to talk about. Lots happened over the weekend as predicted. Uh, We have a lot to talk about on this new strategy the Democrats are having in regards to attacking this administration Uh, And still hoping that in some crazy way, they're actually going to (laughs) win. It's like you don't even have a candidate that can. You know, it's just kind of. So we're going to look at that. Their new strategy. Racial one is not working, but they see that people get triggered with religion. So now it's shifted. Um, We have to talk about the commentary in regards to Israel banning Omar and Rashida. Let's talk a little bit more about Rashida and uh, little skeletons right there. But also we're going to be starting this show talking about uh, global politics, things that nobody is talking about. And you have to wonder why. Uh, So... One thing that I can tell you is um, we've been talking about the situation in Syria for a long time, right? And since November, I've been saying that the the city of Idlib is very strategic, very important. And if Turkey extends itself to take that area over, they will have problems. For some reason, though, they seem to be in some fantasy world thinking – Oh, well, Russia's our friend. Yeah, Russia may be your friend, but the only base Russia has outside of Russian territory right now is a huge naval base in Syria. And if you take hold of Idlib, then they're done. So what happens? What is happening? Well, we were right. The minute they started to take hold of Idlib, Russia struck. Russia struck so hard that three are dead, 12 are wounded, and Turkey's kind of sitting there with their thumb up their tushy thinking, well, what happened? Um, also in the news, and it's kind of breaking, um, there has been a death of a um, cabinet official of Erdogan's, Huluk Dursun. Uh, he's dead after a car accident. Um that is pretty interesting. 
the way his death happened. People are calling for an investigation because uh, it was a pretty, pretty odd car accident, they say. Um, so let's 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 talk a little bit about Syria first. As you know, uh, first of all, Turkey's economy is tanking. Uh, Turkey is getting very aggressive within many nations and has forged alliances with nations like Tripoli. And I want to call it a nation because it's the only place where uh, Libyan backed by the Human Council Muslim Brotherhood is there. Uh, obviously Qatar, obviously Somalia, and obviously Yemen. And here's where we go to the obvious. A few weeks ago, I reported to you guys how the United States had sent 500 troops down to Saudi Arabia. That was on the heels of the first drone attack from Yemen, right? That happened about three months ago. Well, today and yesterday, there have been multiple drone attacks um, to, to Saudi Arabia by the alleged Houthis. Now, what's really weird is that no English-speaking channel is really talking about it. I found some foreign channel mentioning it, but not much. But I found, obviously, since I'm a polyglot, I found ways, sorry, to find the information we need, which is, you know, this is a really, really big deal. It turns out that it is, um, you know, Turkish derivative. The Yemenis are using Turkish drones. The Turkish drones I described on Friday um, to attack Saudi Arabia. And the Yemeni Houthis claim the attack on Saudi Arabia's uh, Sheba oil field. Take a listen to TV Sarawak, which um, is mostly Thai, if I'm not mistaken. But they, but they speak English. Good evening and salam ibu pertiwiku. Houthi forces in Yemen have made a drone attack on oil facilities at Sheba in Saudi Arabia. The Yemeni movement's Al-Masira television said the facilities attacked included a refinery and oil storage. It did not say when the attack took place. Sheba, operated by state oil company Saudi Aramco, is located in the east of the kingdom, close to the United Arab Emirates border. The Houthis, who control Sana'a and most of Yemen's other populous areas, have stepped up attacks against targets in Saudi Arabia in recent months. In response, the Saudi-led coalition has targeted military sites belonging to the group, especially around Sana'a. There was no immediate Saudi confirmation or comment. Okay, so that's all we got in English. Everything else is in Hindi and, you know, um, Arabic, so I can't play it for you. The only thing I can tell you is, is that, you know, they are stepping up the attacks. There is a channel on uh, YouTube called Aerospace Iran, where it's literally showing you the footage from uh, the um, drones uh, targeting Saudi Arabia, which is even crazier. What I'm trying to point out here is, is that Turkey has taken sides and is starting to fund and operate in a really abrasive manner toward the non-Muslim Brotherhood countries, toward the countries that are looking to the West, toward the countries that are looking to establish peace and not war and not domination. Um, so 
this is the one factor of Turkey that I wanted you guys to be introduced to. Uh, obviously, I've introduced you guys to the fact that they've been funding most of these. But on Friday, which, you know, that show was actually corrupted and I was kicked off air when I was telling everyone that Rashida married her mom's brother. Um, you know, uh, she, I played a clip where they were talking about these advanced drones that they have, talking about how they've been selling them. And I've also reminded you that that one time that the mainstream media reported that, you know, our drone was shot down and the president said, no, it wasn't. It was a Turkish drone that was in play here. So it's really important for us to focus and see who's the one with the weapons, who's the one selling the weapons, who's the one that's aggressive and demanding. So having said that, the fact that, um, you know, just this weekend, we had the death of Dursun. Now, Dursun was like the cabinet member. He was like the minister of like tourism and, you know, the interior ministry, um, and he actually led the whole um, St. Sophia, which is one of the oldest um, Christian churches that Erdogan decided to turn into a mosque. Um, he was taken out. He was a key factor because he was a very strong Muslim Brotherhood supporter. And we're seeing that a lot of people that are flanking uh, Erdogan are simply dying out into the background, if not dying literally like this guy. So we're seeing an attempted removal of peripherals. Now that strategy is the best strategy to use when you can't target your center target. Um, we use that too. And we're seeing it in our nation too. And I'll explain later on the show uh, as the second half where we target just um, domestic news and what's going on here within our borders and the new strategy that the Democrats have um, given birth to. So having said that, we're starting to see his peripherals being attacked, targeted and um, removed from positions, uh, either by force, either by retirement or either by death. And that is a big deal. Now, we've also seen that um, Turkey kind of put an ultimatum to the United States saying, listen, we don't agree with your Kurds, so you need to collect these guys because we're going to kill them. Because we say that they're um, hostiles. I don't care if they're working with you. I don't care if they're working with your team to get rid of ISIS. We don't like them. We say they're terrorists, so we're going to start bombing. So either you deal with that or we're going to have issues. And they literally spoke in that manner not so dumbed down right, to the United States. And now the news are reporting that we, um, you know, allowed them to enter northeastern Syria and expand their green zone, which I've been talking about since November is a big deal. Uh, you know, how far into Syria they want their air quote green zone, um, which is more territorial makeup take up. Uh, so, here we have them uh, kind of inching in the U.S. not really agreeing, but not denying, saying, oh, well, I dare you. Let's see what you have to say about this or what you're going to do about it and kind of let them be and let it play out as it is. Um, 
on that note, you know, they uh, supposedly stated uh, a couple weeks ago that the Kurds had shot down, um, had shot a missile over to Turkey, and it was the Kurds that work with the U.S. that did it, even though there was no evidence of such because we have our own guys working with them. So we just took that with a grain of salt and said, well, you know, I think we need to start um, slowing down a little bit on Northeast. And so... Now we see them going full speed ahead with Idlib. Idlib that they kind of died down on in March. And they came in really strong. And here's the strategy. If they can grab Idlib, then they can catch the coast of Syria. If they catch the coast of Syria, then their demands for drilling in territory that's not theirs, that's Syrian or Cypriot or Israeli or Greek, is theirs. And that is exactly what they want. But there's only one problem. The largest Russian naval base is there. The largest one. And so I've said it before. Even though Turkey seems to be on their side, they need to be really, I mean, um, Russia seems to be on Turkey's side. They need to be really, really careful. Because Russia is, uh, you know, a double player. I said this when I saw them work with the EU saying, oh, yeah, maybe we're interested in, uh, you know, this all Instex program um, because, yeah, we want to give money to Iran and, you know, circumvent U.S. sanctions and stuff. Yeah, like they did. Here's the thing. Uh, it was it was pretty hilarious to watch it because. You know, they were literally holding press conferences with the Russians about this, about how they're going to circumvent, you know, the strategies uh, that they have in place to circumvent our um, actual sanctions against Iran. So it was it was pretty interesting to see that. Um, And I said, you know, bottom line is uh, they're not going to allow it to happen. Well, here we are. We have where um, Turkey came into Idlib and, you know, the 720th outpost for material tech support for the Russian Navy is located on the coast. Okay. It is right by, it's like right by um, uh, Tripoli. Like it's, it's, you can uh, go toward Tripoli through there. Right. So we've got Lebanon, we've got Tripoli in there, you know, area, We've got, you know, it's on Syrian ground. Um, it is it is pretty, pretty, um, how do I say it? Strategic, because Tardis, from the ancient time, was known as a uh, uh, solid port to the end of the Mediterranean, as they would say, the end of the Mediterranean shelf, um, which sits on the coast of northern, um, the northern area of Cyprus, that little tail that kind of drags into that Turkish Gulf part. So, you know, it's strategically in the right place um, for Lebanon, for, you know, how it sits there. And we're talking Tripoli, Lebanon, right? Um, It is the most insane thing you have ever seen. The way the Russians responded when they sat onto Idlib this weekend. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, They did not even leave room for the Turkish people to respond or say anything. They were just like, "Um, no, this is done. 
boom, three people were killed and 12 people uh, were uh, injured. And a lot of people sit there and say, well, you know, this is not a good thing. This is a problem. Well, here's the thing. We have um, the Kimim Air Base, which is also called the Hamimi Air Base, which is actually operated by Russia. And that's southeast of Latakia, right? And so they've got a big air base and they share some of the airfield with Al-Assad International Airport. So that's where it's at. There's the Tiyas Military Air Base. Uh, That's a T-4 air base. It's actually a Syrian Arab Air Force and it's located north of Tiyas and west of Palmyra, Syria. And then the Russians also have the Shairat Air Base. And that's home, again, to the Syrian Air Force. And it's located in Homs. It has two runways and it has a lot of aircraft. These are, this is where Russia is enjoying, uh, you know, their um, uh, positioning, okay? The way they can... Uh, have access to places because, you know, the Russian Navy has, you know, obviously there's like Moldova, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, you know, they even have Vietnam, just so you guys know that they actually have a Russian Navy base for resupply and stuff in Vietnam. But Syria is like their most important part. And that is, you know, a huge deal for them, a huge deal for them. And so Idlib strategically, once you have Idlib, you can control the two air bases and the shores, apparently, you know, strategically speaking. So now that we saw Turkey invade, boom, immediately, like with no questions asked, fire. They struck it so hard. I mean, the Turkish people were not expecting it. And they are at the point of war now, uh, you know. No one knows how to respond to it because, um, you know, Khan Shakyan um, and Idlib, they were, they are at a point where there is no discussion anymore. Uh, There were uh, airships uh, from the Syrian army as well um, and the Russian um, SU-35s. They bombed a few, you know, Turkish um, uh, convoy points and um, the suburb of Kanshayakun of Idlib. And they actually caused the death of Turkish military. And uh, they lost a lot of weapons. Uh, it was actually uh, caught on video. I'm waiting for that to be emailed to me. It was something that caught the Turkish people off guard. They had no idea that was going to go on. Absolutely no idea. And, uh, you know, this is going to spark war. And like I said, I've said it before. Maybe I'm a time traveler, right? But I said that when Turkey goes down, it's going to be Russia coming from the north. It's not going to be us. It's not going to be anyone. Moscow is going to take control of it and get it done. So, you know, that is a huge, you know, concern because now it puts the brake on any oxygen, economic oxygen that could have been provided um, to Turkey um, by Russia. And so, you know, what, what people need to understand is right now they are in very deep... Um, I would say trenches of war. 
Uh, the U.S., from what I hear, hasn't really responded. Um, they should be speaking with the Russians soon. Um, uh, you know, Russia is seen to have provided help uh, in um, supposedly <laughs> offering Turkey uh you know, these um, aircrafts to fight. Yet, on the other hand, they've just annihilated the majority of their weapons stash in Syria. So it's really, really odd. The situation is really hot. Uh, from what I'm realizing, uh, the the damage that has been done today from sources is um, between Russia and Turkey is pretty deep-seated. Uh, coming on the heels that Erdogan just purchased the S-400s from them and was entertaining the idea of buying aircraft from them. You know, Moscow just literally annihilated the majority of their people in Idlib, not like um, killed them, but took out all their weapons and storage and ammo. It, it's It's done. And so a lot of people are wondering how this is going to pan out. This is going to change the face of the Middle Eastern um, block on how they're fighting this war in Syria. Because if Turkey has taken the step to put the brakes on them coming into um, Syria, that's, that bodes very, very um, bad for Turkey. And... It's pretty incredible. I found a video, I'm retweeting it now, um, where they attacked um, Kanshaya Kun, uh, that one you can see on video. Uh, I mean, it literally just happened. And it's just, it's horrific. It's horrific on the side that, you know, even though um, we've been warned about Turkey, even though we've understood that Turkey has been um, moving on the black market, not only uh, human organs and gold that's been stolen from like Venezuela or wherever, uh, artifacts and uranium uh, from Iran, from the northern road <clears throat> across to Syria um, and through the Turkish border, you know, from the south to enter. But now they're trying to gain ground in Syria to create a foothold. And we've seen them do it on the maritime side. So where they've expanded maritime-wise, uh, you know, closer, you would say, to their shore, their shelf, is exactly what they're claiming. See, if, if, you, if, you, if you, we revisit the statements made by Erdogan uh, a couple months ago when they started demanding that um, shelf, you know, that oceanic, uh, the sea shelf that they say is there, it actually borders onto Tartarus and, and, and Tartus, Tartus. And the thing is, that's where the Russian naval base is. They already know what's up. The Russians already know what's up and they've kind of kindly said you're it's not happening and they're like oh don't worry we're just going to get there. You think Russia trusts them? No. Even the Arabs don't trust the Turks. None of them do because they're insane. And you're going to be like well Qatar does. Qatar is following them. Qatar doesn't care to be independent. They're just Muslim brotherhood and they just follow along. Somalia doesn't care to be Somalian independent and as long as they're part of one group that agrees on one thing. Uh, Turkey has now initiated their move to regain the territory they were forced to forego when civilizations became civil. 
And this is where we're at. And they are showing the world that they have no qualms of stepping on anybody's toes or coming into anybody's face because they're like, I dare you. And the thing is, who's calling that dare? What are we doing in that sense? So, um, you know, Turkey, here's what um, Al Jazeera News reported. Just take a listen to it quick. A Syrian or Russian warplane is believed to be behind this air attack close to a Turkish military convoy. It was making its way through the opposition-controlled province of Idlib. Turkey says it was heading to one of its observation posts. That's in the Hama town of Morek, and like the rebel-controlled town of Khan Sheikhoun, a few kilometers away, it could soon come under siege as Syrian government forces and their allies advance. The Syrian foreign ministry is accusing Turkey of trying to stop the army's advance and providing support to what it calls terrorist groups. Turkey's local allies, the so-called Syrian National Army, were recently seen heading to the front lines to help fight the government's military push. The National Army were sent in massive reinforcements to the front lines in Idlib. And the second we have seen today morning that the Turkish army has sent massive convoy to Khan Sheikhoun in order to establish two bases there and to prevent the Assad regime from uh, cutting the M5 highway. That highway will allow the Syrian government to connect cities under its control and revive trade. But So uh, here's the thing. SNA is Syrian National Army. What is the one that's illegitimate guys right now in Libya and Tripoli in in Tripoli of Libya? Okay, what is it called? The GNA. Right. And the GNA is backed by who? The UN. And by who else? The Muslim Brotherhood. By who else? Turkey, Qatar. Right. And here we have the same thing with the Libyan National Army, which is backed by who? The UN. And again, Turkey. And again, Qatar. Basically, the Muslim Brotherhood. So they are the terrorists. The LNA are the terrorists and Turkey is supporting them too. So this is a very big deal. People are just not connecting the dots. It's not the Libyan National Army. It's not the GNA for the Syrian National, the, the Libyan National Army and the Syrian National Army are not by the Libyans or the Syrians. They're by the UN and appointed and backed always by Turkey. And we're seeing this repeat itself. When is someone going to put a stop to it? And what you're listening to now is Qatari-funded Al Jazeera, you know, which are actually forced on YouTube to say Al Jazeera is funded in whole or in part by the Qatari government. So they're clearly saying we don't want them to link up the cities that want to remain under the president that they elected Assad. This is a big deal. Uh, We'll pick this up and um, run into Iran next and the ship being released right after this short break. Red State Talk Radio is now available as a voice command on your Amazon Echo and Echo Dot by simply saying, Alexa. Play Red State Talk Radio. Red State Talk Radio on TuneIn. Turn to every single American. Now, we've been hearing all these stories about sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities that... You can now find us on the Amazon Echo and Echo Dot on TuneIn, on iHeartRadio, and we also have the phone apps in the App Store for your particular phone. And just in case we activated your Echo Dot, Alexa, stop. Hello, my fellow patriots. My name is Michael Flynn Jr., and I am the proud son of General Flynn. Your support of the last two years has been incredible and will never be forgotten. 
If you'd like to continue supporting General Flynn, you can donate to our Legal Defense Fund. Any donation is welcome. To donate, go to www.mikeflynndefensefund.org. Thank you, and God bless America. Hey, this is Leonora Cravota from Red State Talk Radio for My Pillow. I used to have trouble sleeping. My Pillow changed all that. I now fall asleep within moments of my head touching my pillow. That's how comfortable My Pillow is with its patented interlocking fill. My Pillow stays cool and does not go flat. Plus, it's machine washable and dryable. My Pillow has a 10-year warranty and a 60-day comfort guarantee. My Pillow is also the official pillow of the National Sleep Foundation, and it's made right here in the USA. My Pillow is now offering Red State Talk Radio listeners a four-pack special with two premium standard or queen pillows and two go anywhere pillows. That's four pillows for the price of one. To take advantage of this special offer, call 1-800-961-9194 and ask for promo code Red State. That's 1-800-961-9194, promo code Red State. Put sleepless nights behind you with my pillow, the most comfortable pillow you will ever own. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit mypillow.com. Guaranteed life insurance with no medical exam. Sounds great, right? Even better, your rates will never increase and benefits will never decrease. If you're a U.S. citizen between 50 and 80, you can get life insurance guaranteed. It's not guaranteed in every state and you may not qualify for every policy, but when you call, you'll speak with a licensed insurance company. They'll give you all the details about guaranteed life insurance. So call now, 1-800-707-1219, 1-800-707-1219. Welcome back uh, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tory. So where we were at is Turkey um, uh, just getting into uh, the areas that they shouldn't be because, you know, Russia said no. Russia said do not do this because you will be taking hold of a place that is important to us. And if you come to the place that is important to us, we will have no choice but to strike. And Turkey called their bluff. And now Turkey is in trouble. So there is chaos right now in Syria. Russia hits this Turkish convoy near Idlib. They are, they have no idea, you know, if they're going or coming or how they're going to respond to this. And, you know, uh, basically at, at the end of the day, that's how, um, it goes. Um, in regards to, um, others, other issues, um, USS Porter actually left, um, the Black Sea. And um, made a port of call in Turkey. I want to uh, get this clip up, which is contradictory to how I would see things specifically. But I'm trying to see how I can get this going. So uh, basically, our ship, the USS Porter, um, uh, left the Black Sea um, and it deployed toward um, Vosphorus heading to the Med. Um, So according to the photos that were posted um, by the Turkish ships um, uh, online, they showed that the ship kind of just left. And so they were mocking the fact that Turkey chased it away. It didn't really because we were exercising there. Uh, But later today, that destroyer actually stopped at um, the um, naval base ships 
while in the region um, after re-entering the Black Sea. We entered the Black Sea on the 8th uh, through Bulgaria and in Constantina, Romania. And um, we have been, you know, kind of just exercising there, watching the way things go. And so we left and went to Turkey. Now, a lot of people are trying to say that this happened because um, the Russians said so. But the fact of the matter is what people don't realize is that this is even bigger. The reason why we were at the Black Sea was something that I reported about months and months ago. Remember how I told you guys that in April we sent out a lot of ships from the United States with lots of weapons and helicopters that landed uh, in Greece and Bulgaria and some to Romania, right, where we reinforced um, those nations, Well, here's where it gets really cool. Uh, So this is how you can see how things are going. Uh, We also talked about this Iranian ship. Remember, we talked about the Iranian ship and how the Grace One was confiscated by uh, the United Kingdom illegally because it doesn't have crude oil. It had lighter oil, um, which is um, it has heavier oil, which is ship to ship transfer. Well, here's the thing. Uh, the ship was actually released, and as it was released, um, and it's now in international waters, the Grace One is no longer known as the Grace One. They changed the name to Adrian Daria um, One, and the flag is no longer Panamanian, it's Iranian. And so now we know that the ship has sailed... And it's headed to Greece. I want you guys to listen to what Bloomberg had to say about this. Obviously, you can pay attention that the female correspondent from London can't even pronounce things correctly. So I'll correct her uh, when she says things wrong. But we'll get into exactly what I was saying in the beginning, that the tanker was never going to Syria. It was going, where did I say? Greece, the Mediterranean. Turns out it is going to Greece now. Take a listen. For the relationship between the U.S. and the United Kingdom, this could be something which could come back to literally bite Boris on the proverbial. Well, I think the U.S. has made it very clear that their disappointment is with the British government for allowing the Gibraltar uh, Gibraltar Supreme Court to release the Grace One, as you said, is now being uh, renamed. And as you said, Mattis, the officials were saying that the U.K. needs to think of this in a broader context. What does this mean as Boris Johnson tries to negotiate um, a leave at the European Union and a free trade agreement with the U.S.? Could this have any implications for that? Now, these officials didn't say this specific incident was would mean that there wouldn't be a free trade agreement. But they did say, does the U.K. want to do business with the United States or do they want to do business with Iran? Yep. Well, before we continue to listen to what they have to say, let's ask ourselves the question. What does it look like? Does the United Kingdom look like it wants to do business with the U.S. or Iran? I mean, they are looking into this insect, um, you know, money system where they circumvent U.S. sanctions, right? They're the ones that are trying to hold on to this deal. They're the ones that illegally took hostage of the ship to do what? Provoke the United States to jump in, right? So what does it look like to you? That's the question. Because it seems like at at any cost, they're willing to hold Iran in the same place they're at now. Therein lies the point. I mean, you don't get a free trade deal for nothing. Uh, That's sort of got to be said. Look, can you tell me actually what happens with this vessel now? It's departed. It's renamed. Um, What's the function that you're tracking this on? 
Yeah, so check out the BMAP function on the terminal. If you still type in Grace One, you can see it's actually off. In, it's in international waters. It's off of Gibraltar, and it's heading to what we know now as, to Greece, off the waters of Kamalata. Now, it remains to be seen. Okay, the waters is Kalamata, not Kamalata. And um, that is one of the military bases that actually received uh, U.S. weaponry and helos what will happen with this vessel, but two uh, vessel brokers were saying that what could happen is that we have a ship-to-ship cargo transfer in international waters. Wait a minute. Wasn't that what we were saying that that ship was targeting to do? Ship-to-ship transfer? We said that months ago, right? When it first happened and it was nabbed over a month ago, I talked about this, where that ship cannot dock because it's too heavy and it's not going to transfer because it's not crude oil. It would be ship to ship transfer. Here they are confirming what we said. Off of that port in Greece. But you have to imagine this is something that the United States is going to be tracking because we do know that on that vessel is more than two million barrels of Iranian crude menace. Yep. And I'm on B map as we speak. It is literally uh, it's like a disco armory. Um, <laughs> Geopolitical front. Um, I, we touched on this a bit, a little bit yesterday with our, our 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 editor here in the Middle East. We had some drone attacks into Saudi Arabia mm. uh, that hit an oil field. I, what I'd like you to do is put that in context because I was really quite astounded. This is one of Saudi Aramco's holdings. So politically and from an oil point of view, what what does it mean? Yeah, they call it the remote, the most remote treasure in the world. That's what the Saudi Aramco um, calls this. You know, it was a small drone attack and a small f- fire, Aramco said, and that they, it wasn't able to um, hit production. But Khalid al-Fale called it a terrorist attack. So I think what it really does is it's just going to heighten the already tense relationship we're already seeing happening in the Persian Gulf. Um, and what everyone is talking about is this escalation, not either side, whether it's the U.S and the Saudis or the Iranians want a war, but it's this any sort of escalation of miscalculation of um, an event happening, a crisis happening that could lead to something um, more, you know, difficult to manage than many had expected. So I think this just adds a bit of risk premium. We did see oil bounce a little bit on this. I think still the oil, though, the picture is certainly looking at the demand side of the story, waiting for a China trade deal, looking at what's going on around the world in terms of GDP growth and, you know, the U.S. bond market flashing recession. But this definitely adds a bit of risk to the market. So as you heard, they kind of nonchalantly mentioned the fact that Saudi Arabia was attacked by a drone, a Turkish drone. OK, I'm telling you this in Aramaco. And remember, we had sent 500 troops that are, you know, toward the east, southeast, where, you know, you would be able to have easy access to where Qatar and the UAE. And so that is where it was targeted. Um, you know, they totally danced around it. Didn't even talk much of it uh, because it didn't affect oil prices. But this is a very big deal. And the more the mainstream media diverts our attention away to what is going on in the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean, the more we're going to be in the dark. Because I can tell you, scanning all the foreign channels today 
while I was in my doctor's office waiting, um, uh, you know, to see him, I saw that a lot of them are pushing the narrative that, um, you know, they were talking about India and Pakistan, and they were saying that Saudi Arabia is at war with Israel when they're not. Um, actually, they're in talks. So it's really, really odd the type of narrative that the mainstream media oversees is pushing too. So um, I'm a little bit, um, not a little bit, I'm very concerned as to what is going to break out, especially with this um, move that I knew Russia was going to do. I knew Russia was going to attack Turkey. I don't think Turkey expected Russia to call their bluff, thinking, oh, Russia is just going to trust us. And it's like, Russia doesn't trust their own mother. They're going to trust you. So, um, you know, this is a big deal. The fact that the tanker is going exactly where it was supposed to go, you know, over a month ago before it was illegally seized, which is, you know, cargo to cargo transfer with a Greek ship. And I said, from what I heard, it's Eastern Mediterranean could be Greek or US, but it's someone out in the Mediterranean by Greece's end could be Cyprus. I said that. And here we are. It's going right where to where it was supposed to go. Now, that Having uh, th- having said that, the president tried to block and say, we want to check the tanker. We want to investigate it. We want to seize it. And the UK quickly was like, nope, nope, nope. We're just going to release it right now because the U.S. would then have unequivocal proof that indeed there was no crude oil and that this was stolen. And this was a way, as the other intelligence sources are saying, to try to get the U.S. looped into a war. And we just wanted the proof. So now after this was done, and this ship was released. Take a listen to what the president had to say when he found out that the ship was home free and it was going to be leaving. But Iran would like to talk. They just don't know quite how to get there. Look, they're very proud people, but their economy is crashing. It's crashing. Inflation is through the roof. They're doing really badly. They're not selling oil. Even, I mean, we put the sanctions on. The oil is selling much less, I mean, much less than we thought. It's, it's like a trickle, and they very much want to make a deal. Okay, so he told you exactly what's going on, and that's reality. They do want to make a deal. They've been wanting to make a deal. We've been talking about this deal. We've been talking about how it's being done. And we're just not paying attention. Iran's narrative has changed. Uh, things uh, are looking uh, to a different way. The way they're speaking about, uh, you know, uh, the United States has changed. Uh, not so much, but has changed. Uh, I reported to you on Friday, which that show is gone, guys. Um, so I actually have to re-record a whole show because it is gone um, unless, you know, Scott Adams, when he comes back from Europe, can recover that from whatever we can salvage uh, that was on air. But during that show, and I'll revisit it, I was um, demonstrating how uh, Iran is now taking hold of their corruption. So something that flew under the radar is that their chief justice, um, of their what you would call a Supreme Court was actually dismissed in March of 2019. Now that was completely under the radar for me. And what I realized is, is that their whole justice people, like it's like a Supreme Court, but they not only make decisions on court cases, they make decisions on trade, you know, legally, like the legalese part of it, establishing laws to allow trade with certain countries, who is, who, who's an enemy country and making that law, making them the 
enemy, stuff like that. So that country, those people in itself that put out those regulations and laws for the country of Iran have all been arrested and replaced. A few of them actually went to jail uh, last week. So they are cracking down on corruption like nobody's business. And to have an Ayatollah of the standard of the Supreme Court to be put, replaced, and then a few months later thrown in jail by um, the Supreme Leader, that is a big deal. They are cracking down on their own corruption. And it seems to come on the heel of, you know, the drone attacks, the the firing of, you know, short range missiles, the stealing of ships, the, you know, the um, IRGC supposedly going out there and bombing ships uh, with people that were meeting with the Supreme Leader at the time. Uh, corruption is being cracked down in Iran. And, you know, it's so um, in tangent with what we were seeing trickling out as news from North Korea before they were liberated. We saw that type of news like Kim getting people arrested, throwing them in jail. You know, they were saying that he was killing them all, but he was arresting people, removing people from his office in talks with our own people. And we saw all that come through and to fruition uh, during that transition period where we're like, wait a minute, are we really talking with North Korea or, you know, is this my buttons bigger than yours really going to cause a nuclear war, which we all knew it wasn't. It was all for show. And that is what we're seeing now, though with Iran, we're playing on a different scale. We're butting out. We're letting Iran see the true faiths of the European Union and those that call themselves allies. And while we butt out and let them bury their own selves, because we all know clowns do what? They pull their own pants down in the in the end of things. That's how it always works. And what we see now is Iran coming to the understanding that they can see clearer now. They can see exactly what the intentions are and what the plans are. The fact that China told them is one thing. The fact that, you know, Russia told them is another thing. But when they see it with their own eyes to reinforce what President, what the Trump administration has told them um, is pretty incredible. And we know that um, Abe from Japan conveyed it too. He probably said, look, this is what was happening in North Korea. This is how they realize this is how they're fixing it. And this is how, you know, you can probably move forward. These are the plans that the U.S. has. I mean, they pulled out of this deal because it's holding you hostage, man. They're paying you to just simply exist and have this black barrier where it's just completely blacked out from the rest of the financial world so they can funnel money and clean it up. You're basically their, you know, gal Friday. And when they don't need you anymore, they will eradicate you. And that is exactly what's happening. Now, before um, uh, we head over into domestic, I wanted to play a clip. Um, Al Jazeera, obviously, from a um, uh, more Qatari perspective, nevertheless, a perspective, and I can point out the differences, is um, explaining and dumbing down the Kashmir conflict. Because a lot of people have written in not understanding, you know, how it all happened. And they've done a pretty good job, but more so from the basis of the staunch Muslim, you know, brotherhood side. But it still is, I'll point those figures or and those statements out to you. Take a listen. 60,000 dead over nearly seven decades, three wars between two nuclear armed states, and countless human rights violations.
Uh, that is a soldier saying, unless there's bloodshed, I'm not satisfied. This is the story of Kashmir. Let's go way back. Located in the Himalayan mountains, Kashmir is rich in resources and diverse in history. It was home to Hindus and Buddhists by the 9th century, and in the 14th century, Islam emerged as Kashmir's major religion. Under Akbar Zain ul Abidin, Kashmir prospered through religious inclusivity and progressive policies. Muslim rule ended in 1819 when the Sikh kingdom of Punjab captured the region from the oppressive Afghan Durrani Empire, though the Sikh kingdom implemented its own form of oppression. After the Anglo-Sikh War of 1845, the British East India Company annexed most of the land from the Sikhs. As the British were hardly shy at distributing land that they seized without considering the indigenous people, the Kashmir Valley was quickly sold to Hindu Dogra Raja Gulab Singh on the condition that he acknowledge the British government's supremacy. The Singh family's rule was cruel and greedy. Kashmiri Muslims were subject to slave labor, heavy tax, and state violence. Demonstrated in 1931, when 22 protesters were shot and killed at the trial of an anti-Maharaja activist, the day is known as Martyrs Day. Kashmir's struggle for freedom started long before the creation of India and Pakistan. The great symbol of the British Empire came down for the last time. When India gained independence from the British Empire in 1947, the country was ideologically split. Majority Muslim provinces became the newly created Pakistan, and majority Hindu provinces remained as India. The partition is one of the bloodiest in history. Almost one million people were killed in the sectarian violence that followed. Kashmir's Maharaja Hari Singh was asked to join one or the other, fearing they would join India. Some Kashmiri Muslims rebelled. The Maharaja tried to quell the uprising. Around 200,000 people died. Hearing reports of attacks on Muslims, tribesmen from Pakistan's northwest frontier invaded Kashmir. The Maharaja asked India for help. India obliged, but on one condition: Kashmir joins them. He signed the instrument of accession, but it was agreed that a vote would be held once the fighting ended. The proposed referendum would have no option of independence, though. Kashmiris would join India or Pakistan. When the war ended on January 1st, 1949, the UN-backed ceasefire line split Kashmir between Pakistani and Indian administration. But the- okay, I just want to point out that 1949, as you know, at the time of these wars, there was what World War II. So while we were having a hot mess in the West, the East was rolling around in blood. It was a big bloodbath that's still going on. The vote never happened. To this day, Kashmiris still haven't been able to decide their own future. Following the conflict, the western portion of Kashmir came under Pakistani administration. Kashmiris seeking their rights here have been met with political repression and torture at the hands of Pakistani authorities. But it's the largest portion which came under Indian rule that suffers from the most violence and unrest. It's majority Muslim, with a number of Hindus, Sikhs, and Buddhists. China controls the most uninhabited area called the Aksai Chin. Pakistan and India fought over Kashmir again in 1965 and 1999. In the 1980s, increased opposition to Indian rule led to armed resistance against Indian troops. Pakistan provided weapons, training, and financial support to the separatists. The government of Pakistan has endorsed that Kashmir is a freedom struggle. It is not terrorism. The region's insecurity forced 100,000 Kashmiri Hindus out of the valley. 
Okay, so I'm going to um, let you guys in on something. So now in 1999, I was somewhere where I can't say, but I remember that missiles started flying between Pakistan and India, and we all kind of sat there like, wait a minute, what what just happened? Like that was the most unexpected thing, this spark. And think about it. It's one huge piece of land that was promised to India if there was a vote that said they wanted to go to India that has been split in three ways. So what would be the most ideal outcome? Do we give Kashmir independence? Do we actually have this vote go through? Can we ensure that the vote is safe? It is not going to be skewed. And would that includes the Chinese ruled portion of it? Or do the Kashmiris just want to be independent? Do we provide them independence and fiscal support and infrastructure support so they can be independent to end these wars? Like, how does this work? Those are the questions that need to be asked because Pakistan was created on itself from the Punjabs, right? That's where this whole outrise began with the Sheikh, um, uh, you know, religion and this outbreak. So now we've got a country literally torn in two. So if you could imagine, let's just make it simple. Let's pretend Canada is Pakistan and India is Mexico and Kashmir is the United States. Okay. It's literally being torn in pieces. And yet this nation by itself before the Punjab invasion lived in harmony, Buddhists and Muslims and, you know, Hindus. They all lived in harmony, but for some reason they had to pick a side. And so the violence is real, guys. We're talking bloodbaths. We're talking, we're talking hacking, you know, people, uh, as they stand, shooting them, not giving any merit to them. And, you know, it's mostly those, uh, you know, the Muslim forces that wish to take that, um, you know, to that level because they are able to, or, or, or I would say, see those that do not abide by their, ideologies uh, that are lesser than human. And we see that today. That is the way the Somalis treated the Ethiopians. Uh, that is the way, you know, the Arab clans treated the others, uh, you know, that would enter the Christians, the Jews, you know, that is how they would see them as lesser than human. This is why jihadis have no problem taking your life. It's not because they're heartless because, you know, they kind of are, but in their mind, you are not human. You know, you are not human because you don't understand. So you're dumb. So you're below even an animal. Okay. That's where you're at in their eyes. So when they take lives, they don't see it as taking lives. They see it as eradicating a cancer or eradicating something that's a nuisance that doesn't really have the right to life because they don't know what life is. That is basically the ideology. So Kashmir is at that point where we have the staunch Muslims, we have the Hindus, we have the Buddhists. I mean, Buddhists are those of peace, get there at war. They're being torn at war. What do they do? So this is all that's happening around the world while we're here talking about Pompeo, talking about Omar and Rashida, which we should not underestimate because this weekend... And their move and their attempt to skew is the new strategy of the Democrats, which is to create religious division and to pluck apart the peripherals of the Trump administration. So that's what we're going to be talking about right after this break and also explain to you how Rashida married her mom's brother. We'll talk about all that in just a bit. I'll see you shortly.
small town in Tennessee, a long way from the suits in D.C., but close enough now to see this mess. Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper, and grab a shovel, dig the hole a little deeper, just to bury my kids right up to there. Welcome to Red State Talk Radio. You're listening to Tori Says. For the next hour, I'll be your host, Tori. We'll be discussing news, foreign and domestic, Unfiltered news. Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Again, we're here always Monday through Friday, 12 to 2 Eastern Time, live on Red State Talk Radio. So I wanted us to talk about domestic issues, uh, tell you about this new plan that the Democrats have forged and have uh, begun to unfold. Also tell you about something really, really alarming that I um, happened to stumble on Netflix. Um, it was so, um, alarming. There's this new show, a limited series called the family. And it talks about what we know to be this secret society, but putting it under the face of Christianity. And I'll tell you what, I watched one episode and I kind of sat on it. Okay. And then I rewatched it again only because I thought to myself for anyone that would have been in the position where I was a little over 10 years ago, struggling with my faith, it would be very easy for me to have, oh, well, kind of, because I also have some uh, knowledge that a lot of people don't have in regards to these things. But I can tell you that it was very easy for just the average Joe to kind of go with it and question a lot. And it is the most horrific attack I've seen on religion ever. Um, it's, I urge you to take it with a grain of salt and understand that this is the ultimate type of propaganda, uh, the type that they, that they flip to you in a way um, as to how to make it more um, digestible. Okay, so it's really interesting watching it. It is very interesting watching it. Now, I wanted to start with what our president has been telling us today. So the first thing he tweeted is great cohesion inside the Republican Party. The best I've ever seen. Despite of all of the fake news, my poll numbers are great. New internal polls show them to be the strongest we've had so far. Think what they'd be if I got fair media coverage. Now, the cohesion within the Republican Party is better than it has been at the moment. 
because the cohesion that we see now is the one that is going to determine who is rerunning and who will be reelected from the GOP side, who is aligning with this agenda and who is not. And the sleepers will be removed. Now, so that's the one thing. So he's just making that note. The next tweet was about Mamooch. Anthony Scaramucci is a highly unstable nut job who was with other candidates in the primary who got shellacked, right? (laughs) And then unfortunately wheeled his way into my campaign. I barely knew him until his 11 days of gross incompetence made a fool of himself bad on TV. Abused staff got fired. Wrote a very nice book about me just recently. Now the book is a lie. Said his wife was driving us crazy. Something big was happening with her. Getting divorced. He was a mental wreck. We didn't want him around. Now fake news puts him on like he was my buddy. So the Scaramucci model stands. So this is a way to listen, observe, and take without um, being realized. Make sense? Because, like I said before, our timeline has changed. The things that should have happened or would have happened didn't happen. 9-11 changed. Seth Rich changed it all. Things changed because the right changes were being made by people that could foresee what is going to come or what is to come or what they were trying to do. This intervention, the right voices coming out at the right time, the right platforms being uh, zoned in at the right time, the right platforms being removed at the right time, you know, the resurrection of voices at the right time, the slander of voices at the right time, the exposure of those uh, that are patriots with a Y at the right time. But here's the thing. Nobody cares. Stop trying to figure out who you need to follow. Stop trying to figure out who's right or wrong. Listen to the message. I don't care if that message is coming from Don Lemon. If it's the right message, take it. It's the message over who delivers, right? So we need to be looking at the message. There's a lot of people, oh my God, HN is down. We don't have Q. Q's been on mainstream. You're just not paying attention. Oh my gosh, so-and-so was banned for the platform. I'll never hear their or her voice again. Yes, you can. Because that is changing the way things are done. These hindrances, these changes are all necessary because the timeline has changed. If there was one shift, one move by someone else, 9-11 would have happened. If there was one file misplaced, one pencil out of place, it wouldn't have happened. But those are very calculated moves. Very calculated. So when you do something ever in your life, whatever it is that you do, you do it in a way that you know that you can predict the outcome. And so say you you do X, so that way you get a response of Y because you want to counter response with Z and end it there, 
right? Sometimes you make it look like you're doing it to get a hit, but that hit is so that your counterpunch comes in for the KO, right? So this is how, you know, decisions are made. You either do something to get X result and end it there or do something to get a result so you can counter that result and enter it, end it there. It's all about calculated moves. It's all about precision, and being at the right time, at the right place, saying the right thing at the right time, at the right place. You know, and this is why things are being delayed. You know, we're seeing the Comey files delayed, this, delayed, that, delayed, FISA, delayed, let it delay. It'll come when it's needed because I think that Hillary's stuff needs to come out first. I'm just saying, rather than the D class of FISA, we ought to have Epstein come out first, which, speaking of Epstein, Speaking of, aside from the fact that his lawyers lawyered up with criminal lawyers, they now have filed a suit because they don't believe that the information provided on the death of Epstein is correct. And you know what that is? That means they don't believe he's dead because regardless, he's dead. So what are they going to do? Sue on behalf of the estate they have no longer control over because the state has confiscated it? Nope. So then why are they filing it? There you go. Because they don't believe he's dead. (laughs) They believe that he's dead on the books and that the story is all yada yada. So I'm, I'm just saying everything happens in the time it needs to happen. The purging of the MCC needed to happen. The purging of New York City needed to happen. The exposure of the corruption in the city of the world, in the capital of the world, had to happen. Candidates like Joe Biden needed to tumble and fall when it happened. Because if things stay on par with this timeline, with no waverance to it, just straight, then it's good. If not, it'll be eight years of something that looks like the last breath of democracy. If by the end of this eight-year term president, right? Eight years he's going to have. If he doesn't set it in stone and remedy the actions of this corrupt, organized cabal, it'll be like it never happened. It'll be that wave of hope that died down and it is evil's greatest accomplishment to show you that you almost had it, but you didn't get it and pulls it right out of your fingers with the last breath that you've got. That is what we need to be focused on. At the end of the eight years, can we ensure that we can recognize corruption, that we can recognize what we need as a nation? That is, that is the focus we need to have now. President Trump is winning. If you leave your house, your job that day and place that vote, he is winning period. His job now is to ensure that transparency is created on all areas of government to allow us to have that control. In addition, he needs to ensure that that Democrat-sponsored bill to centralize elections, to take our tax money for, you know, candidates that they choose, to change the electoral commission, uh, you know, depending on who wins the elections, that has to be killed completely. We cannot have that go through. The minute that goes through, that's it. We're done. I don't care how many fail-safes you've put in for transparency, it's done. 
So what we need to focus on is going forward. We need to focus on, all right, now this is going to be done, but what next? Like, we know what to expect from Trump. He's trying to get peace. He's trying to sort things out. He's also trying to purge the swamp, which, you know, in the end, think about it. We want to purge the swamp. We want to hold them responsible. But we've got so many weeds in this garden. How do we remove them all? At one go, you know, this, this weed killer is not working. And Barr's not either. And I said it. So what do we do? Because now they flip the narrative. The narrative has changed. They flip the narrative to a point where you're kind of questioning how, how, how we go forward and if it's the right thing to do. How they're tapping into deep-seated hate. By many people, the way Hitler did, guys, they are tapping into Hitler's mantra about unity. This unity they saw with, you know, um, collected hatred. See, they tried to target it on all white people, but it turns out all the white people are the one on the street talking about how white people are supremacists. It doesn't work. They also tried to target and, and rally up the, the black Americans, the brown Americans, the polka dot Americans, the yellow Americans. It didn't work. But what are people really, really picky at? Religion. So the one thing you need to do is make everyone an atheist and not believe in religion and or have them demonize a religion. So which religion will you demonize? Will you demonize Christianity? You could. But then, you know, you've lost your minorities because the majority of them are Christian. Right? Majority of them are. So then what do you do? Ah, we demonize Jews. That was easy because they're always a problem. They're always attacking Muslims. Look at what they're doing to Palestine. This is the rhetoric, right? And it already started. And I knew it. And now we have the Democrat Party pulling away from it. Pulling away. See, we've got a great economy and we've got people saying that our bonds are signaling a recession. What? No, no, no. The only recession that's going to happen is after 2020 when we pull it and we flip over to the gold standard and then everyone's in a recession. For us, we'll be selfish. Our dollar will be powerful. It'll be backed by gold and we're good. You know, this is where they're going. They're trying to eliminate whatever base we have. And now starting to shift it into the more non, um, how do you say, non, where we're not able to compose ourselves. So they always say at the table, don't talk religion or politics, right? Because those are touchy subjects. Now, politics is in itself controversial when you don't agree with, you know, the other person's policies. Religion, though. That's part of the core and the floor of your morals and the way you work and the way you act and the way you speak. That is one of the most heated arguments. People have died over religion again and again. I mean, that's what jihad is, isn't it? That's what cleansing is, isn't it? The Christians did it. The, 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 The Muslims did it. The Jews did it. Everyone's done it at some point. Religion is that Achilles heel of man. 
where it's more primitive and not wanting for you to mess with it. But more so when you have these insane DSA Antifa type people who want to protect the one religion that everyone doesn't like, which is the Muslims, they're going to target the ones that Hitler didn't like, which is what? The Jews. See, one thing that people don't realize is that Hitler wasn't racist to black people. Hitler wasn't racist to anybody that wasn't German. He was just racist to Jews because he said the Jews ran the world because they were so, um, you know, frugal and, you know, they had banks and all this. And, you know, culturally they have, uh, they've always been very good with money, kind of like Greeks always dominating hotels and restaurants, right? I mean, whatever. Or Chinese and Indian people dominating the corner shops in your city. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, stereotypes, yes, because some people are just great in other things. And culturally you're raised to be better in some things than another. Who knows? Whatever it is. The bottom line is he chose religion. He chose to demonize a religion. And this is exactly what we're seeing the left do. They are demonizing a religion. Ilhan Omar sent out a tweet showing, and I put it on ToriSays.com, an article about Hong Kong. Now, I told you that the people in Hong Kong are a vast number. And they overwhelm their police and National Guard asking for help from mainland China. Because there's so many people, it was overwhelming for the government to keep them at bay. And so violence was used and they overran them. And guess what Ilhan Omar said? Now imagine if 1.7 million of you poured out into the street too. Now, obviously 1.7 on an island like Hong Kong, yes, it would be impactful. 1.7 out throughout the United States, not so impactful, but still a big deal. So she is literally asking for civil unrest. A woman that has declared jihad, a woman that hates this nation, and a woman, when afforded the opportunity to gracefully apologize or gracefully, you know, uh, elaborate the, the, the allegations made against her, instead she took the opportunity to attack the nation of Israel. She took the opportunity to attack Bibi Netanyahu and the country that she serves. Pretty incredible. Coming from a little feisty, clawed woman, right? Pretty incredible how she just maneuvered that in there. Because it is war on religion. And what people don't seem to see, it's not just, you know, the Jews. It's the Christians, too. It's anyone but the Muslims. And, um, you know, we're going to have an exclusive where, um, you know, there was a, a woman that I know. Uh, she was selling holiday ornaments on, you know, Facebook Marketplace. So she put out, you know, Christmas ornaments. You know, here's the pictures. You could buy them locally, you know, whatever. And she was told by Facebook that it was hate speech and she couldn't place the advertisement. Well, when she changed the word from Christmas to holiday, it was allowed. So now the word Christmas is literally banned on Facebook. It is considered hate speech. Jewish people are considered hateful now. Did you see the articles in the New York Post and the New Yorker? Very contradicting. One of them all pro-Israel claiming that Palestine doesn't even exist. When the position that we have as a nation is that there's two people. It's the Palestinian people and the Israeli people, period. But for some reason, the New York Post took the hard position saying, Palestine, there is no such thing. 
And then we have the New Yorker claiming the Jews have taken over everything and Palestine and they're disgusting and they just attack and they do all these bad things. And we had Ilhan Omar demonstrate that in a thread, how they kill people, how they're vicious, how they're this. She doesn't say that the Palestinian people are fine living with the Israelis, that they actually live in harmony, but it's Hamas and Hezbollah and, you know, those terror funded cells that actually begin these attacks with the Israelis that start to blow things up, that infiltrate, that kill people, that do, that do, that do. Because obviously when there's two, you know, two groups of people and each one is thinking that the other one's invading the other, right? You know, (laughs) bottom line is there's going to be tension. But when you can work together in harmony, there's no excuse for not being able to have dialogue, especially in this day and age. But how can you have dialogue when you have, you know, black money kind of pretty much funding people that don't want to talk, people that just want to eradicate Israel in a whole, people that if they had the ability, they'd be shooting that nuke and eradicating Israel faster than you can blink. They want to do that. And that is their goal. And Rashida and Ilhan Omar have made it clear as well that that is their goal. I want you guys to listen to what Rashida had to say after she canceled her trip to Israel. It was very interesting how she applied. She said that she wouldn't commit any of those, you know, atrocities of, you know, debating, you know, promoting BDS or causing any terror attacks. And then once they approved her, she decided to cancel the trip. And here's why she said she's canceling it. Ratcheting up his attacks on a Democratic congresswoman of Palestinian descent. Trump created controversy, as you may remember, when he urged Israel not to let in Representative Rashida Tlaib, not to let her into the country. ABC's Rachel Scott is in New Jersey, where the president is spending the weekend and doubling down on this controversy. Rachel, good morning to you. Dan, good morning. Well, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib was supposed to be on a flight to Israel this weekend. She says she is proud of her Palestinian roots, but would not compromise her values. And the president, who has weighed in on every twist and turn of this entire ordeal, is now firing back. I should be on a plane to see her. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, emotional, thinking of the reunion she now won't have. Tlaib canceling her trip to Israel, turning down a conditional offer from the Israeli government to visit her grandmother. Just one day after the country said she couldn't come in otherwise. I'm still a granddaughter. More than anything, I'm a granddaughter. But it was a trip President Trump never wanted her to take. I think it would be a terrible thing, frankly, for Israel to let these two people who speak so badly about Israel come in. In an unprecedented move, the president pressured Israel to bar Tlaib and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, two of his political rivals and two vocal critics of Israel, from entering. Israel following suit, citing the pair's outspoken support for movements that boycott the country. But Israel did leave the door open, approving Tlaib to visit her grandmother in the West Bank on humanitarian grounds under one rule do not promote a boycott. They were demands of me to basically silence me. But an Israeli spokesperson said Tlaib wrote to the interior minister accepting those restrictions. He now says her decision to cancel shows her hate for Israel, overcomes her love for her grandmother. And here at home, the divisive political battle now turning personal. uh, President Trump going after Tlaib, accusing her of grandstanding. The president tweeting, 
Israel was very respectful and nice to Talib. Digging in even further, he added, the only real winner here is Talib's grandmother. She doesn't have to see her now. And we're back now with Rachel Scott, who's in New Jersey. Rachel, the president has... Hold on. I'm still laughing. That was awesome. Okay, so let's just remember, in his first tweet, he used grandmother in air quotes. That's going to be important after this break. We're going to break this down. But let's take a listen to what, you know, Good Morning America had to say about this. He's really been consistently attacking Congresswoman Tlaib, along with her fellow members of the so-called squad. These are four freshman members of Congress. They're all women of color. Clearly, he sees political upside here. Absolutely, Dan. The president faced intense backlash when he suggested the members of the so-called squad should go back to where they came from, even though they are all Americans. Still, he has continued those attacks. He clearly sees this as an opportunity to paint these progressive congresswomen of color as the face of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and for that reason, I think we can expect these back and forths to continue. Rachel Scott in New Jersey, thank you very much. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking. Okay, we don't want to hear him because he's going to put his final commentary. I just don't want to hear it. Here's the thing. Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are one in the same. Now, we know that um, Ilhan Omar committed, um, you know, married her brother because uh, she wanted to commit immigration fraud. But why did Tlaib marry her mom's brother? That's the question. See, because that's not really her grandmother. It's her mother-in-law slash grandmother. And why would she not want to see her? Because there's a way to get there. You can go through another route. See, she just chose, hey, I want to land in Tel Aviv and take a cab. And it'll only take me an hour to get home, right? Rather than have to go to Jordan and travel two, three hours from, you know, from Amman where I land, an hour to the bridge, and then from the bridge another hour and a half to two hours to get Ramla. So it's, out of convenience because she doesn't have to not see her grandmother, right? She could still see her. She just can't go through Israel. And that's the problem with her. She can't go through Israel controlled territory, but she can also go through Palestinian controlled territory. But see, no one points that fact out. Like you don't have to not see her. Okay. Israel didn't let you, you could go the other way. Omar can go the other way too. And that's if Jordan allows her in. You know, because Jordan has to say you can go through. Maybe Jordan didn't give them visas to go through. Who knows? I mean, I've asked Amon to answer that. I'll have to follow up today and see where they're at with that request. So after the break, we'll talk more about this and the new war the Democrats have waged against us. Red State Talk Radio is now available as a voice command on your Amazon Echo and Echo Dot by simply saying, Alexa. Play Red State Talk Radio. Red State Talk Radio on TuneIn. Turn to every single American. Now, we've been hearing all these stories about sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities that... You can now find us on the Amazon Echo and Echo Dot on TuneIn, on iHeartRadio, and we also have the phone apps in the App Store for your particular phone. And just in case we activated your Echo Dot, Alexa, stop. Hello, my fellow patriots. My name is Michael Flynn Jr., and I am the proud son of General Flynn. Your support of the last two years has been incredible and will never be forgotten. If you'd like to continue supporting General Flynn, you can donate to our legal defense fund. Any donation is welcome. To donate, go to www.mikeflynndefensefund.org. Thank you, and God bless America. 
Hey, this is Leonora Cravota from Red State Talk Radio for My Pillow. I used to have trouble sleeping. My pillow changed all that. I now fall asleep within moments of my head touching my pillow. That's how comfortable my pillow is with its patented interlocking fill. My pillow stays cool and does not go flat. Plus, it's machine washable and dryable. My pillow has a 10-year warranty and a 60-day comfort guarantee. My pillow is also the official pillow of the National Sleep Foundation, and it's made right here in the USA. My pillow is now offering Red State Talk Radio listeners a four-pack special with two premium standard or queen pillows and two go anywhere pillows. That's four pillows for the price of one. To take advantage of this special offer, call 1-800-961-9194 and ask for promo code Red State. That's 1-800-961-9194, promo code Red State. Put sleepless nights behind you with my pillow, the most comfortable pillow you will ever own. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit mypillow.com. Guaranteed life insurance with no medical exam. Sounds great, right? Even better, your rates will never increase and benefits will never decrease. If you're a U.S. citizen between 50 and 80, you can get life insurance guaranteed. It's not guaranteed in every state and you may not qualify for every policy, but when you call, you'll speak with a licensed insurance company. They'll give you all the details about guaranteed life insurance. So call now, 1-800-707-1219, 1-800-707-1219. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So I guess um, I've got someone from Turkey listening. And <laughs> yes, I know. Dersen died in a traffic accident. I just wanted to say I've gotten a few comments from people that are in Turkey. And they should be listening to me more because for some reason they've been in armored thinking that the world loves them. Uh, when it's definitely not the case. They're one of their strongest allies, which was Russia, has just turned on them. So it's obvious that their uh, precious Erdogan is not stating things correctly. Now, moving along on that, I wanted to move along on um, Rashida and Omar. So we've got Rashida pandering to the media about how oppressive it is. And I've mentioned on Friday on my lost recorded show that... um. President Trump was, first of all, Pelosi was advised on Wednesday, so the day before it was announced, she was advised that they were not going to be allowed passage in after they received um, their itinerary, pretty much insulting them, saying that they're going on a trip to Palestine when they're going to Israel. So that was one. And that really, um, you know, set fire to them, especially when they found out that MIFTA is a um, uh, an organization that actually, for first things first, promotes um, BDS movement, the BDS movement, and also uh, funds terrorist cells and promotes terrorism against Israel. So those were the reasons that they didn't let them in because they had no idea what they were going to stage. And if you remember weeks ago on my show, I said, hey, if I was Israel, I wouldn't even let them in. I'd say, nope. I mean, I'd say let them in with a lot of security, but you better beware because what? They're probably going to be staging some stupid attack to make it look like, you know, Jews are hateful and disgusting and everything else they keep saying, uh, because, you know, that's what Hitler did. He would demonstrate just like they did in their tweets. Now, take a listen to how NBC spin the whole Rashida said, Israel is trying to silence me. 
Tlaib of Michigan has a history of being outspoken about her principles. Back in 2016, long before she became a member of Congress, she was part of a group of women who staged a protest against Donald Trump at a campaign speech in Detroit, Michigan. That's her in the middle. She was escorted out of that event. Last year, she went on to run for Congress and won becoming one of the first two Muslim American congresswomen. Shortly after she was sworn in, literally on the same night, Congresswoman Tlaib was caught on camera promising to impeach the president in words I cannot repeat right now on TV. When what she said all but dominated the news cycle, she made no apologies. Quote, I will always speak truth to power. And she hasn't backed down since. Yesterday, Congresswoman Tlaib and Ilhan Omar were blocked from entering Israel at the urging of President Donald Trump. For Tlaib, that visit, that trip was... Urging of President Donald J. Trump. First of all, Bibi called um, our president and said, listen, Mr. Trump, President Trump, I'm so sorry, but it seems like we're not going to let them in. Are you okay with this? Because this may cause conflict between our two nations, and I don't want it to be conflict. We just don't feel comfortable having them in our nation. Trump said, that's fine, and I will totally support you. I'll take the blunt of it, too. I will get out there and say my piece, and he did. He did, just like every other president would, to support another nation in their decision. Now, I could tell you what, Rashida is not that smart. She's not smart. I actually feel really bad for Rashida. I do. Think about it. Her mom was married off to some guy when her mom was only like 12, 13 years old. Okay. And she was taken away to El Salvador. Wait, was it? No, it's Ecuador. Ecuador, where her father started working and she had her first four kids in Ecuador. See, that's the way, you know, all these refugees are coming in, you know, from South America. It's been there for a long time. That's the way they do it. But anyway, so in Ecuador is where she um, kind of had her early years. She was the first child uh, that they had. They were married in the mid seventies and Rashida was supposedly born in 1976, according to her paperwork. Now, um, Fast forward when she was 22, she went to Palestine uh, and was married off to a man in her village. And that man happened to be her mother's brother, her mom's older brother, an older brother than her mom. Are you getting this? It's disgusting. Because if you look at her husband's pictures, and I don't know who reported that this guy was born in 1976. He looks older than her 55-year-old uncle on the video that was being shown with her grandma. Okay? So, let's just, you know, and, you know, at least Omar didn't have kids with her brother, her alleged brother. They're not really related, but she didn't. Rashida did, though. Could you imagine how horrible of a life she must have had? First of all, she was forced to raise her siblings, right? Because that's the cultural thing to do. The eldest is going to look after the others. Secondly, she was put under a lot of pressure. I mean, she was married off the minute she finished, you know, college and sent her off there and she was married off to this dude that was her relative was her uncle that's disgusting you know so you know because what people don't do is do the math like her grandma's like yeah i'm like 85 maybe early 90s i don't remember yet your you know youngest child your youngest child is you know 56 years old so that would mean if you were 90 you had that child at what 45 so you were fertile then i'm just saying so at 45, grandma was fertile. I doesn't really, I don't know. And even Rashida, she has 14 siblings, right? Her youngest is 19. Uh, so it's like she's 42, 43, right? 76. And she's like, what? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, she's um, 43. So she's 43, going on 44, and her mom had her, and now her other sibling's 19, so they're 20 years apart. So her mom, if she was like of age, she would have had to been fertile in her late 40s to have a child, you know? I'm just saying. But I actually feel sorry for her because she's so pretty. Guys, you know, I may not like her, but I think she's actually really pretty. And her smile just hides so much pain. I actually feel bad for her, literally. I do. My heart goes out to her for what she had to endure and how she really wanted to be part of this Western civilization, but was not able to. Her father embraced the Western civilization. Uh, You know, this is why he flipped on her when, you know, she ran for a state seat and she lied about where she lived because he was all about honor. He was a proud uh, man from Jerusalem. He was very proud of where he came from, but he was also assimilated and he enjoyed what the West had to give to him. And for some reason, Rashida didn't. She was very radical. And I think that kind of behavior comes from people that are so oppressed that have to endure what she's endured. Just think about it, being a woman, having to endure all that. I mean, you know, it breaks my heart, really, to know that she was forced to marry her mom's brother. It's disgusting. Think about it. It is really disgusting. And so this woman wants to go back with Omar. And Omar is the ringleader here, guys. Make no mistake. You should see these two women together. Omar tells her what to say and what to do. Rashida had no problem in saying, I'm not going to promote anything. I just want to go home. And then suddenly she changed it. Why? Because Omar told her to. My sources um, in my article as to why she switched, and I have really good sources in the house, said that Omar and Rashida had argued about the title of the trip, the bipartisan trip. They did not want it to be titled Israel and Holy Land. They wanted to say, you know, discussing Israeli and Palestinian issues. They wanted the word Palestine in there, and they would not do it because they weren't going to Palestine or doing anything of such. They were meeting with Israeli delegates and looking at Israel basically. And so this is why these two women refused. And I think more so it was Omar. Omar was pushing it because she comes from a nation that doesn't even recognize Israel as a legitimate state. And there's many nations around the world that do that. There's some of them that don't recognize either or (laughs) there's some that just recognize Palestine and some that just recognize Israel and others like the United States that recognize both. So, uh, you know, what's what's funny is, is that Omar comes from a nation that does not believe Israel is legitimate, that they should not exist. And she's made that clear in her tweets. And here is where it gets really creepy. We have them pushing this rhetoric, this there's a big push now of segregating America by pushing the narrative that, you know, Israel is evil. They're now pulling the left away from Israel. This is a very big deal. It is something very scary and something very real that's happening. And for me, it feels as if they are doing it the right way. Like the left is really doing it the right way by, you know, 
knowing where to target. They know where people will start to rally, and that is the hate of the Jews, the way Hitler did it. And, you know, you may or may not agree with what um, Israelis have done in the past. You know, just like in every country, we have a cabal, right? There's a cabal in Germany, a cabal in the UK, a cabal in the US. Of course, there's a cabal in Israel, too. And so, you know, where do you realize that you are demonizing people of a religion that you may or may not agree with. I mean, I'm, I'm Christian, but I don't disagree with um, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, Jews, and even Muslims, you know, as long as it's not radicalized. I don't see how the Israelis have radicalized their religion to cause torment, but I do see how the Muslims have radicalized their ideology and history and religion to do so. So now what they're doing is, is that they're trying to foster the Muslims and shine the light of hate on Israel. And this is a very big deal. Here's how they pushed it. It's going to include a visit to her grandmother, who's from the occupied West Bank. She lives there. Well, today, the Israeli government changed course. They said that Tlaib could come if she agreed in writing not to promote boycotts against Israel during the trip. Congresswoman Tlaib initially agreed, then changed her mind, saying she would not be silenced. Here with me now, someone who's been closely following Donald Trump as he increasingly leans toward authoritarianism and who has been following this story as it continues to develop. Mehdi Hassan is a columnist at The Intercept and the host of Upfront on Al Jazeera. Mehdi, look, the the irony of the Rashida Tlaib stuff is... So remember, we have Mehdi here, who's um, funded by the Qatari government and um, promotes Islamic terror responding on this is that at some point a few weeks ago that the president said yes. uh, send them back Rashida Tlaib's from Detroit but her parents are actually from Palestine she was going back and then he told Israel to, to stop her Colin uh, call former deputy assistant to President Obama said uh, that Trump can't even keep his racist demands straight uh, what do you make of this mess surprise Donald Trump has no consistency or principles um, what do I make of the mess Ali actually this is this is wrong how was she born in Detroit when she was in Ecuador with her dad as the firstborn? That's really weird because there's pictures of her in Ecuador when she was a youngin. So that's a question that we have, right? Do we have immigration fraud paperwork here too? I mean, she's got it on her Instagram. I got the picture of them in Ecuador. She needs to tell me how was she in Ecuador working, you know, her mom and dad at the early age with her first four siblings and yet for some reason she was born in Detroit. That's a question people need to ask. Is her birth certificate a replacement birth certificate in Detroit? Because she said it herself, my parents didn't know what to do. And so he started working in Ecuador. And you have pictures of her in Ecuador when she was a little child, when she was a little baby. So was she born in Detroit and then they went back to Ecuador and then they came back to Detroit? Which one is it? The story doesn't make sense, does it? Two big takeaways. Number one, the president of the United States, who styles himself as a great patriot, nationalist, wants to make America great again, wants to stick up for America in the world, allies with a foreign government in order to throw two duly elected members of the United States Congress under the bus, simply because they are women of color, they are Muslims, and they are strong critics of his. Doesn't care about the fact that they're members of the United States Congress. Allies with the Netanyahu government say, yeah, don't let them in. Outrageous, unprecedented. Even AIPAC, 
Even APAC comes out and says this is not a good move. Number two, the other APAC, big takeaway, Ali, which has been very clear about the fact that they are not on the same side as Rashida Tlaib. Not at and all. And not Ahmad at all. Omar They're on, very on much they feel about yeah. it. Yeah, but we have to remember that APAC also was not visited by any of them, nor did Kamala Harris, first time ever of a Democratic candidate for president, decline to actually meet with them. Let's just point that out. Israel, yeah. They're very much on Netanyahu's side on everything else. But here's the, the big other takeaway related to Israel and the debate in the United States, which Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have done so much to kind of highlight, which is this is stark proof, if any more was needed, that the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza is a reality, that the Israelis control the lives, the everyday lives, the freedom of movement, the freedom of speech of ordinary Palestinians to the extent that a Palestinian-American who is a member of Congress wants to come and visit her grandmother mm -hmm. and she's told you must sign a letter giving up your freedom of speech. That Here's where he's devising and saying things like Israel won't let people leave. Well, actually, like I said, she could take a flight and go to Amman. From there, she could, because I've done this route myself, she could take a bus, um, she could take a cab all the way up to the bridge. Um, it's, um, you know, King Hussein Highway slash bridge. Um, she takes, she has to get on a specific bus that takes her across the bridge into Palestine controlled territory. And there Palestinians move in and out of Palestine controlled territory as they wish freely. No bars held. Uh, but obviously there's a, uh, there's like a tariff, you know, like tolls that you pay. So, you know, she would take a cab from there and then a car should be waiting on the other side to pick her up to drive her to where she wants to go. That's how she goes. She doesn't have to go through Israel and Israel doesn't have to let her in. Just like we don't need to let anyone into our country if they want to go to Canada and they're like, oh, but you have to let us in. We don't have to do anything. No country has to do anything. That's the way it is. It's like someone saying, well, you know, I want to go to um, France. right? So Italy has to let me in so I can go through uh, you know, the border, um, because it's on the border of Italy and France. I want to like go across the border and Italy says, I'm not letting you come in, go through another way, go through France, go through another way. You're not coming through this way. So this is where they're pushing to the idiots that don't know geography and don't know how things work. The only reason she, she did this is grandstanding. And that's exactly correct. The president is right. She doesn't have to go through Israel to get to where she needs to go. She could go through the Palestinian controlled port of entry, which is on the Jordan side. She doesn't have to. So it's all rubbish. It's all pandering to those that have no idea what the geopolitical scene is like and how you can access. They're trying to make it sound like the only way Palestinians can get in and out of Palestine is through Israel, which is a lie. It is a flat out lie, because if that were true, that would be a problem, right? Humanitarian problem. But it's not because that's like entrapping people in one place. Right. But it's not. I've done it. I've done my travel to Israel going through Haifa with a boat across from Cyprus. I've done it going through Amman. I've done it through landing in Tel Aviv. And I'll tell you what, I'm an American citizen, right? I was a kid the first time I came, and yet I was still met with dudes with M16s waiting to see if they were going to let me pass, both at the port of entry at Haifa and at the airport. And that's okay, because they have every right to check you out and say, can you or can you not come by? That is the way it should be in our nation now albeit the m16s were a little overkill but you know whatever that's the way it is 
I was in a holding room. They, they literally in a holding room with my little sister the first time we went through the port of Haifa. And I was just like, dude, what's going on? They saw me coming. We're kids, man. And we're, the, we're with a bunch of people that have Greek passports. It's not like why or, or Cypriot passports, Greek and Cypriots that we came with. Like, why would they put the two Americans to the side? Like, I had to wait a bit. They were like watching us. And I was like, the fucking oops. <laughs> I was really upset. I'm sorry. I was actually scared because I was like, why is he looking at me? Like, I'm still like missing teeth. I have baby teeth and he's looking at me like I'm going to do something wrong. You know, so but I understand their fear. They don't know what's happening. Like, you know, yeah, OK, we were little kids. It shouldn't have been done like that. But that's their country. They could do whatever they want. I've been looked at funny when I've been to Iraq, Iran, anywhere in the world. They look at you funny anywhere. So, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that they're pandering and making it sound like Israel is entrapping all the Palestinians and disallowing Rashida to meet her grandmother slash mother-in-law. No, she can go another way. They're just not telling you. That's absurd. Even Steny Hoyer, Democrat, who's criticized Ilhan and Rashida, big supporter of Netanyahu, yeah. even he came out today and said, this is unprecedented. Yeah, so so that would be a problem um, for anybody. But there's a, you know, I mean, if any American were, were blocked for a lot of reasons, except that America has given Israel since 1945 in some fashion or other, whether it's deals or direct assistance or military aid, something uh, along the lines of about $143 billion, yeah. about three-plus billion dollars last year or in the 2017 fiscal year. Uh, only Iraq and Afghanistan were ahead of uh, Israel in 2017. But historically, no one's even close to Israel as a recipient yeah. of American money. Last night, Bernie Sanders was on the show and, and had a view that maybe this is the opportunity to rethink whether that's a good return on investment. Let's listen to what he said. Israel doesn't want members of the United States Congress to visit their country to get a firsthand look at what's going on. And I've been there many, many times. But if he doesn't want members to visit, maybe he can respectfully decline the billions of dollars uh, that we, we give to Israel. Really? So why isn't anyone in outrage when the United Kingdom banned American citizens from going there? People that don't collude with terrorist organizations, people that don't have their trips funded by terrorist organizations, people that aren't terrorists, but they're simply journalists. Why no outrage for that? Why is there no outrage that they have barred U.S. citizens from supposed allied nations? Oh, because they're not Muslim? Is that it? Because this is the new tactic. Their new tactic is to pull apart from Israel, pull apart from the Jews and make everyone hate the Jews. You want to see Nazism? This is it. You thought that the fascists that were down in Portland breaking things and showing their peacefulness and their resilience on how they attack people for not abiding by their ideology or their standards was a big deal. You have seen nothing yet. This pull from pulling away from Israel, which is the only staunch ally with nuclear assets in the Middle East for us right now, is a huge problem. And the fact is, they're not only attacking, uh, you know, the uh, Americans, I would say, that are supporting them, but even from within. Even the Israeli government was attacked by people of their own um, at some point. Uh, they were actually told that, hey, you know, you did this and not everyone in my party wanted it. So they tweeted out the paper with had everybody's signature on there approving not to allow Omar and Tleb into the country of 
Israel. So it makes absolutely no sense when you hear people saying that, you know, this is how, uh, you know, racism works and this is why we need to stop funding them. It's funny how they raise the funds of Israel now, never raised them in the past before. And, you know, we are helping them because they are helping us. They're providing the intelligence and the feedback that we need and the support in the Middle East. And you would say, well, the Middle East is a hot mess, Mm, more so because we've created a hot mess too. Well, yeah, we've created a hot mess, but it wasn't us right now. It was the cabal that was running this nation, which is slowly going away. And we see that everywhere, slowly falling apart. We're seeing that... The cabal is under attack. And so now they are pushing hard. They are pushing hard to create division. And you know what the next person on their on their radar is? Pompeo. They are putting out videos of Pompeo where he called, um, you know, the Obama regime a totalitarian, but also that President Trump is too. You know, Take a Trump listen. Other, you know, Donald Trump the other day said that, it, quote, if he tells a soldier to commit a war crime, the soldier will just go do it. He said they'll do as I tell them to do. We've spent seven and a half years with an authoritarian president who ignored our Constitution. We don't need four more years of that. I realized, listening to the speech of Mike Pompeo back in 2016, that I've never really heard him go off on Trump in a video. Here's the thing. Pompeo said all that when he didn't know Trump, when he couldn't approach Trump, when he couldn't talk to Trump. So what are they doing now? They're attacking President Trump's cabinet. They're trying to create division because they want Pence to rise. Saying this again, Pence to rise. So now they're attacking Pompeo and they're saying, oh, well, you know, because he can't beat him, he's just going to go right up there. No, Pompeo is actually a pretty chill guy and he's all about fairness. Uh, he's not a guy that is seeking to um, establish any dominance or make a name per se as others. He doesn't have those ambitions. He's actually quite low key. And that's what other nations like about him, that he he looks soft and sweet, but he also you know, stings like a bee. And that's what they like about him, other nations, when he's strong arming them too. Like when he was out in North Korea, he got that done. He is a deal maker. You know, bottom line is what we need to focus on right now is trying to push forward to increase transparency. And that'll only come with the destruction of the CIA. So one, just pay attention to the increased anti-Israel rhetoric. And two, Pay attention to how they are trying to create and facilitate the grounds of Pompeo being removed. We'll have a lot more coming this week. Uh, From what I see breaking that the um, warden of the prison of the MCC has finally been fired. Uh, There's more to come on that. But like I said, Epstein's attorneys are asking... On that note, God bless all of you from Red State Talk Radio. I'll see you same time, same place right here. Have a great evening. Town in Tennessee, a long way from the suits in DC, but close enough now to see this mess. 
Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper. They grab a shovel, dig a hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to there.